Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And this is Beth in my closet in North Carolina. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Here we are back in the closet. I know. Always. Our favorite day of recording. <laughs> yeah. We, I love recording days. I do too. Did you get my text message yesterday? I was like, and once again, I'm excited to record. I did. I didn't get it till this morning because you didn't send it until like 11 last night. Oh yeah. I realized that you were probably sleeping. I was. I was asleep in my bed. Mm-hmm. I was not <laughs> far behind after I sent that. But nice. I was sitting there thinking, oh, I'm so looking forward to tomorrow morning. I know. We just get to catch up and see each other's face and talk murder. Mm-hmm. Murder. Uh, before we talk about that, I just was saying to you that I want to talk about the coronation of yeah. the new king of the England of the, the Commonwealth. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. So, okay. you know, King Charles now, mm-hmm. and he does not have a lot of fans over there or okay. here in general because. You know, he kind of did Diana dirty, and he had a side piece who he married, and now side piece is the queen, Camilla. So, <clears throat> I'm sorry, that came out of nowhere, that clearing. Um, She doesn't, like, if he dies, she doesn't then become queen because she's not part of, like, the bloodline? That's right, yes. Okay. If he dies, the king will be William. Okay. And everybody really wants, I think, him to die because, like, so I'm not kidding. It's such a weird thing. But anyway, because everybody really likes William and Kate. Mm-hmm. And so they want her to be their queen instead of this Camilla, Queen Camilla. And he said it was when he got married to her, he made a public statement that said she would never be the queen because she is not beloved. At all. So she would be queen consort, which is just like the person who's married to the king, but she's not the queen of England. Uh, well, she is what changed. She exactly. She is not queen consort. She is queen Camilla. And the people of the Commonwealth are like, oh, heck no. Did they they like, um, put this tape back in his face or whatever when he made this statement and be like, uh, that's what he said. I mean, but he can do whatever he wants right. as the king. He's just not liked for it. Right. Yeah. People are unhappy. And mm-hmm. I didn't watch the coronation. But which you know, I would have. But I was in Nashville. Oh. Because oh, I was in Nashville actually seeing a queen. <laughs> I went and saw Queen Taylor. Oh. <laughs> but I am bummed that I didn't watch the coronation. Because there has been a lot of stuff that's come out about, like, you know, they read their lips. People do this for Mm -hmm. the royals because they're not mic'd or anything. And so they're talking to each other like um, King Charles and Queen Camilla were talking and, like, whispering to each other. And so there's been people that have read their lips that have said, like, what they were saying to each other. It was stupid. It was like, this crown's really heavy. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) It was, like, really funny stuff like that or whatever. But anyway. I am like, I like get bad to watch lip it. reading from the NFL. Yeah, yeah. Except no, they think that's really what they were saying, though. Oh, really? Yeah, no. They they were talking to each other, and somebody read like a specialist read their lips, and that's what they were saying to each other. They think, <laughs> like, like he said, this crown's really heavy, and she was like, "I know, but you can't move it because it'll fall off or something." I don't know. It's really dumb stuff, anyway. That's I, no wonder nobody wants him to be king. Oh, he's like that's what you say during he's your an idiot he is like a bumbling idiot like sorry no offense don't come after me <laughs> <laughs> royals but anyway it's fine wow. so i saw taylor yes we made national news yes because the concert was delayed and from really bad rain really bad it was delayed hours and hours we did not have to wait hours and hours because i took my daughter, who was only nine, and I knew she wasn't going to go on because it was thundering and lightning. So I was like, there's no point in us going to the stadium now mm-hmm. because she's not going to perform. She might not at all. Anyway, a lot of people were upset about it and said that she should have just canceled the concert instead of making everybody wait 
it out for hours and hours. She didn't go on until like 10, 15. Um, I, I, okay. So like, I kind of understand that, but I also like understand all of you trap, not all, all of you, but there's probably a significant amount of people that traveled for it that are grateful that oh, she yeah. still did it because the, that would have been probably it. They wouldn't have gotten to see her then. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I was on the boat where I was glad that she mm-hmm. went ahead and performed because we did travel and we didn't have a bad experience just like waiting because I mean, honestly, like my daughter, it was like a big tailgate party, like a Swifty mm-hmm. tailgate party. Like people were just walking around like trading friendship bracelets and we got like we actually were able to get merch because Mm. we had so much time we ate and we you know like everyone was singing taylor songs really loud Mm. at the top Mm. of their lungs and so she was just living her best life she was with her people (laughs) my kid was fine and then but here's the cool thing though so nashville has a noise ordinance Mm -hmm. at 12 15 it's supposed to shut down. Girlfriend paid the fine and kept playing. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yes. Because everybody was, it was like, it was at the Tennessee Titans okay. stadium, okay. Nissan stadium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Across the river. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was big. It was like 70,000 people. It was the biggest uh, venue I've ever been to in my life ever. Oh, really? I wow. mean, it was an NFL stadium. Right. Mm-hmm. Like real big. (laughs) So it was cool. It was cool. It was so neat. Oh my gosh. It was absolutely magical. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you guys had a lot of fun and it still happened. How much is that fine? Do you know? No, I don't. I feel like I should know because I did read that because everyone was like, why is she still playing? She's still playing because we all thought Mm -hmm. she's going to be done. She's going to play for two hours. Right. And she's going to be done. No, she kept going. I think she played until it was after one in the oh, morning wow. when she finally quit. Like, wow. and it was right, ra- and it rained a little bit, like while she was playing, which was sounds crappy, but it wasn't. It was magical. Right. The whole thing was magical. Yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I know. Here. And my daughter has worn her friendship bracelets every day since <laughs> to school. Oh, that's <laughs> All of them, all like 15 of them that she has. She, she is like still on a, in a um, like haze about it. Well, good. I'm glad. That's yeah. Fun. It was so fun. Anyway, what's new with you? Well, nothing much except I do have an awful crime to go along with this wonderful Taylor Swift story that you just told. <laughs> it's not as magical, although it will start, start – out a little magical. <laughs> okay. Anyway, are you ready for it? Let's are do you this. ready for it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This suggestion... Came from our listener. Lord, why are you laughing every time we don't say okay or so? This suggestion. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, okay. So this suggestion came from our listener, Lauren. She sent us an email, I think back in like February, asking us to cover it. Okay. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Her family is from this tiny town that we're about to head to, but moved out of it before this crime occurred. So they were not okay. All right. Well, good. That's good. That's great. And I'm also just really glad that they got out of there because this tiny town was really destroyed because of this story. And also just the area to me does not seem very appealing in general. I actually have no idea where they ended up moving. It could have just been like outside of this town, but somewhere in the area. So if I am totally destroying your area, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't seem appealing to live anywhere near this place. Okay. All right. Okay. And I'm going to explain because I'm going to give you back. Are we? Are we in like Antarctica? (laughs) No, we're in Georgia. I love Georgia. 
Well, I mean, there's certain parts of Georgia that it needs some help. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So it's also, to me, the biggest doozy that I have ever covered. It has so many twists and turns. So hold on to your pants. I'm Whoa. using all of our terms now. Okay. 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 I did read a book about this case and it's called Fear Came to Town by Doug Crandall. That I will give away because I no Woo-hoo. longer need it in my presence. Oh, no. I, f- <laughs> I did feel the book was well-written and provided a lot of details that were not in – I actually hardly read any ar- news articles because I didn't need to based on what was in this book. I'm basically giving you a synopsis of this book. <laughs> but okay. There, is, there will be more in there. So anyway, okay. we're going to a small town called Santa Claus, Georgia. No way. Uh, yes way. Santa Claus, as of the 2010 <laughs> census, has a population – I know it's going to be hard to hear that. Santa Claus, Santa Claus. Yeah. Santa Claus. Um, population of 167 people. Oh, that's not a town. Oh, but it is. But it that's is like an actual a little – a little – that's like okay. three classes. <laughs> I understand. It's the, I think the smallest town that we've ever – been to it has a total of 115 15 sorry 115 acres is that's the size like wow which is i had to look this up like 0.18 square miles so it's like literally this teeny tiny town oh my gosh you can miss you it is very cute you can miss the town totally unless you know it's there Okay. Even the author of this book, the whole like very first chapter of it. <laughs> Even the book is tiny. It is. It's a little a and – yeah. <laughs> um, he kept saying how he like kept drove past the same road and could not find it so many times. So anyway. Oh my gosh. Yes. Definitely the smallest town I think we will ever yeah. go to. Mm-hmm. Probably. Okay. Tell me so, about Santa Claus. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you a little history of Santa Claus. So back in the day, it had a population of 267. So we've gone down some. It's located about 75 miles west of Savannah in Toombs County, T-O-O-M-B-S. Okay. That's how you say that. This small town was incorporated in the 1940s. Just about all of the street names are Christmas themed, like no. December, Candy Cane Lane, <laughs> or Drive, Noel Street, Dasher Lane, all this. A pecan farmer and his wife founded the town. He was tired of watching tourists supporting all of the neighboring pecan farms. And so he had this idea to make the town a, a small town called Santa Claus because Christmas time made everyone happy and he thought it would draw people towards them. So I don't know this for sure, but in my head, I'm thinking he owns all 115 acres of this, and he's uh-huh. just like, I'm going to make this a town now. Yeah. I don't really, I don't know, really know how you make a but, town, but – Yeah. I don't know how that would be the case. But anyway, so other people began moving in and wanted to name the streets Christmas-themed names, so then that's how this little town essentially became. That is something. Isn't it? It is. It's yes. really cool. They began keeping Christmas decor up year-round, and it became somewhat of a tourist stop because people who knew that it existed, because I definitely had no idea that this existed, would come and like check out the town and then also want to get their mail postmarked from Yes, I was just thinking that. Doesn't that sound like something your mother would do? Yes, 100%. <laughs> And like just mom, like, go to Santa Claus. Yes, like Dasher Lane, Santa Claus, Georgia. Yep, yep. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, our crime here occurs on Dasher Lane. Oh my gosh, weird that I just said that. Yeah, I know. Weird that you picked that one to highlight. So, the um, Tombs County in general was somewhat of a poor area. Um, the like median income for a family was like twenty five thousand dollars. Okay, so not a whole lot of money. There was high unemployment rates, high level of drug addiction, poverty, and off the charts and violent crime. Oh no, that's not Christmassy, guys. No, well, that's the county. So oh, Santa okay. Claus is in that county, but okay. the county in general. The county actually got the nickname Bloody Tombs because Ew. of how violent their crime was. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, I get you. Then we don't want to live there. No thanks, yeah. guys. Are you okay? Also, it's okay down it's a, there? Yeah, no. I, well, I don't know. I, I do want – if anybody lives down there, I need to know the answer to this next question that I'm going to have because it's also 
was known as pretty racist area, which we've definitely come across in Georgia before and other areas. But Toombs County High School had segregated proms. Again, probably something that happened in other places. However, they were still doing it in 2015. No, ma'am. That's the last article that I could find. I couldn't find anything more recent. And they had three different proms, a white prom, a black prom, and a Hispanic prom. Yeah, nope. Mm-mm. Cannot now, support. In this, uh, well, I know. But in this article, they state that it was not racially like um, driven at that time. It was that they were honoring the diverse cultural traditions and different tastes and in food and music. And that's why they had them separate. And that said the racist. Exactly. Everyone was invited to go to any and all of them if they wanted to. But there was a student that someone like in one of the articles that was like, yeah, but we was pretty strongly discouraged. So not really. So it's just a front, that part. So. Wow. Holy Lord. I mean, I don't mean to sound naive, but really? In 2015, Uh, that's. Yeah, 100%. So I'd, I'd like to know an answer as to when that actually officially stopped and whatever, because I couldn't find anything past that 2015 article stating that they were still doing it. So anyway, so moving on, um, there's – That's not the of, crime. That's I feel like that's the crime right there. It should be the crime. That, <laughs> that's done. definitely the somebody, crime. Okay. Somebody finished uh, and this racist prom situation. Wow. Okay. So we're moving on from the history of the town to a couple of their residents. We have Kimberly Denise Lamp, who was born in on February 25th, 1964 in Metter, Georgia, which is about 30 minutes northeast of Santa Claus. She had a rough childhood. When Kim was about three years old, her father was murdered for stealing chickens. He was just trying to provide food for his family, and so he was doing what he had to do, but somebody decided that it was too awful of a crime and had to murder him for it. So after this, her mother abandoned her and her siblings, which got them into the foster care system. So she ends up losing touch with all of her siblings because they were put in different homes. And Kim didn't handle being shuffled around all so many times very well. And at a young age, she became addicted to drugs. At the age of 12, she was sent to an extremely supportive foster family called, or their last name was the Driggers. She loved being there, and she thrived while being with them. And she ends up getting married at the age of 21 in 1985 and welcomes her first child into the world named Brandy. Not long after this, her husband leaves her, and she loses custody of Brandy to him. She's still, at this point, struggling with her addictions and whatnot. And so soon after that, she meets another man, but he isn't a very good man. And in 1986, she has another daughter named Amber. And then in 1989, she welcomes a set of twins, Bryant and Brooke. And this not-so-great guy that she's with ends up leaving Kim. And then she eventually loses custody of those three children as well. And they become part of the DFCS system in Georgia and are in foster care. Okay. So a couple of years later, she reconnects with one of her sisters, Connie, which after all of these years is a blessing because they were, you know, separated at a young age. And she's determined to get clean and to get her children back. So in 1992, she shows up at Vermont Vernon Pentecostal Church and is welcomed there with open arms. The church warmly welcomes struggling people and helps them get back on their feet. Like I think they were kind of known for doing that kind of thing at that time. Okay. She becomes friends with the pastor and his wife and gets straight on the path of recovery. She cleans up, gets a job, cleans up the one-bedroom apartment she has that even though it's not in the greatest of neighborhoods, she's making it a safe place to bring her children back to and a warm home. Okay. So within a few months, she's able to get back visitation with a plan for reunification with her children. And after a short while of having the kids back, Kim starts to doubt her ability to care for them. And she ends up making a plan to bring them back to the foster care system. Oh, okay. A few days after that, though, she realizes that, no, I really want to try again. So she brings one of the children home, Amber. And then within a few months, she brings the twins, Brooke and Bryant, home with her. You know what? I I 
respect this. No, she's 100%. like, I know my limitations here. I want to do the best for them possible. I want them to be safe, no matter what that means. Right. Yes. And she had the full support of that church. Like the pastor and her mm-hmm. his wife like actually helped her like coordinate getting the children back into foster care so that they knew it wasn't just like, you know, I'm back on drugs and I, you know, like she's just like, wait a minute, this is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I need to get like my stuff back together a little bit quickly or more. And so anyway, so but it's a wonderful story. A woman who grows up in the system herself, mm-hmm. who doesn't come out on the other side in very good shape, and then her own mm-hmm. kids end up in the system, but then she cleans up and gets them back. So I know. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool story to me. So, and that's not even actually the end of the feel-good part of this story. So thankfully, we've still got a little bit more feel-good okay. left in us. Kim then meets someone, a local mailman, and he is the total opposite of her. He's an introvert, and his name is Danny Lewis Daniels. Danny Daniels. Danny Daniels. Every time I read that and every and all the things, I just kept getting so confused. I'm like, wow, so people actually name their kids the same name as their first name? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, maybe that's not what was on his, on his birth certificate. I don't know. But anyway, he was born on May 21st, 1950. So he's like 14 years older than her, I think. A little bit older. And he was born in Tifton, Georgia. Do you know Tifton? Do you remember Tifton? No. Isn't Do Tifton we know where- Tifton? Uh, that one podcast, oh my gosh, why can I not think of it, where the beauty queen went missing and was found in a pecan farm oh. like years and years later because of that podcast? It was Tifton, Georgia. Okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I remember that. Anyway, so, so that's where he was born. He, But he spent many of his years living in Santa Claus because his father had been the agricultural commissioner for Tombs County and had some land there. Mm-hmm. And so he left it to Danny when he died. So Danny had decided to build a home on that property with the intentions of, like, raising a family there. Mm-hmm. Danny had been married previously, and he and his wife had adopted a daughter named Jessica. Love that. And when, when they divorced, Danny got custody of her. I don't know the circumstances surrounding all that. I just know that he got custody. He was a good man, and quick. And Kim quickly fell in love with him and knew he would be a great father for her children as well. The two got married on December 3rd, 1992. Kim and her children would move into his home in Santa Claus, and they would make it a wonderful home for all of the kids. Danny also adopted her three children as his own. Oh, cool. Her daughter from the previous marriage earlier, when she got divorced and he got custody, Brandy would often come and visit because she had siblings there, and she was very welcome there. Kim would become a stay-at-home mom. They didn't have much money to live on, but they made things work and stretched it as far as they could for the kids' sake. At first, Kim struggled with integrating the two families. I mean, that's hard. Even though, you you know, you have this great relationship, it's still hard to, like, get all of those kids together and handle everyone's schedules and whatever. Right. And have them all get along and, you know, stepdad, stepmom. It's a whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Over time, they got into a routine and things became more easy. She loved to spoil the kids at Christmas time and would often shop all year long because they had to make things stretch. So she would just like buy little things here and there. And by oh, the time my Christmas mom came, did that, yeah, it's just—I mean, it's just big, magic. big family vibes. Yes, yes. She really leaned into that essence of that little town. After a couple of years, Kim told Danny that she would love to open their home to more foster children. So here's more of the feel good. Like she's like come so far, and now she wants to do what was done for her for Mm -hmm. other kids. Oh, I love that. You know what? We all need to be like her. Be like Kim. Kim and Danny. Mm -hmm. Kim was aware that her background could hinder her from becoming a foster parent, but the couple still went through the process and became approved. By the fall of 1995, the same social workers that had come out to take her children from her and out of her care were now seeking her out for placements. The Daniels had become one of the best foster families that they had in the system. I believe it. They had many Kims, Kims, not Kims. Many Kims. Little Kims. Very many Kims. Very many kids come in and out of their home and they would bring them to church and everyone would gather around them like, oh, who's part of the Daniels family this week and whatever. And they even encouraged the kids to call them mom and dad. Which I have mixed emotions about, but if that's what the kids need, then all for it. 
Like sometimes that's what you need. You need that stability and to be able to say those words to somebody. So amazing story. But we all know that that's not why we're here. No, let's just, you know what? Let's leave Santa Claus there. Can we? I, I know. Can you? I mean, I, I can't even imagine going any further with this because of the name of the town, the essence of the town, and this family. Like, who? Mm-hmm. No, I want nothing more to happen. I want to close my eyes and be blind to all of what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> That's okay. not what we do on Mondays. I know. It's not. So, as we all know, tragedy strikes this family. In December of 1997, the family have seven children in their home. Jessica which is his daughter that was adopted in his first marriage. She's in high school. We have Amber, Bryant, and Brooke. I don't know the age of Amber, but Bryant and Brooke were eight years old at this time. And they have three foster children. Corey, who's four years old. Amanda, not sure of her age either. And Gabriel, who's 10 months old. So they've okay. got quite the, the houseful. High school to 10 months, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Parts of this story are going to be very hard to hear. So just Mm -hmm. here's your trigger warning from now on pretty much for almost the rest of the time. So I'm sorry. Great. In the early morning hours of December 4th, 1997, just after the couple had celebrated their five-year wedding anniversary, Amber, Brooke, and Amanda showed up at the home of Henry and Crystal Taylor in Alma, Georgia, which is about 50 miles south of their home. All right. The couple brought the children in, and they were barefoot in their nightgowns and freezing. Did they know these people? No. Okay. The girls told them that Scott Taylor had taken them from their home and left them on the side of the road. They said something bad had happened in their home, and so the couple called the police immediately, and an officer was sent over to the Daniels' home in Santa Claus. This police officer that showed up was not ready for what he was about to see. He walked into the house and started checking things out. He could hear some noises, kind of like cries, and he would walk into one of the rooms of the children where he finds four-year-old Corey hiding in a closet. He looks over at the set of bunk beds in the bedroom and sees what appears to be another child on the top bunk. He can see like the arms underneath the pillow and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then all he can see is brain matter and blood splattered (gasps) all over. And what is left of a head of this child. No, 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 no. And this would later be determined to be eight-year-old Bryant, Brooks' twin. Oh, my goodness. He had been shot with a high-powered weapon at such close range that it nearly left him decapitated, they said. Walking further in the house, he comes across the main bedroom, and just outside the doorway is the body of Jessica, Danny's daughter from the previous marriage, on the floor with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. Inside the bedroom were Kim and Danny, also shot to death. Kim was shot in the head and Danny in the chest a couple of times. It would also be determined later that when Danny was left there, he was still alive. Oh my gosh. Next to the bed was 10-month-old Gabriel standing, grabbing at the sheets, saying, Mama, 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 over and over again. Buddy. Yeah. Awful, awful. So four-year-old and ten-year-old. Thank God he was alive, though. I know. I know. As they investigated and looked through the home, there were several cigarette butts around the house, inside of the home, and on the outside. There was a beer can outside the home. So they're collecting all of this for clearly DNA evidence and fresh tire tracks. There was also a ladder outside of the bathroom window and shell casings all around the house from from an 1100 Remington shotgun. I don't even know if that's how you would say that. But anyway, basically a hunting gun because Danny was a hunter. So it was his own gun. Yeah, a shotgun. My gosh, that's mm-hmm. weird. Okay. It was, yeah, it was a gun taken from a cabinet outside of their bedroom. That was not locked. But I guess This is a massacre. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Police spoke to the girls and they kept telling them that Scott Taylor had taken them out of the home, telling them someone's in the house and I'm saving you. He put them in a van and drove them around for a while and then stopped and molested two of the girls. Oh, my gosh. And then drove some more. They tried to get away at one point, but he chased after them and caught them. And he he also had the gun or a gun with them, but they were scared of it. So he threw it over a bridge, they said, at some point. 
He then just all of a sudden told him to get out of the van, and that's how they ended up at the Taylor house because I feel like maybe that was like they were at the end of their driveway or something, but that's how they ended up there because he just let them go at some point. And by the way, they were no relation to Scott Taylor. I was just going to say, is Scott Taylor and they were at the Taylor house? Yeah, no relation. Huh. Just coincidence. Who's Scott Taylor? That is the freaking question of the year. I mean, we know. We find out. This is solved, just so you know. But yes, that's that's what we're trying to figure out. So police okay. get right to investigating this, and they're trying to figure out who Scott Taylor is because they don't have any record of anyone with that name affiliated with the Daniels. There is a report in Alma, which is where the girls were, that town 50 miles away, of a stolen van. A 60-year-old man named Jerry Johnson, who was wheelchair-bound, called and said his van was stolen. He said a couple of local guys had come over to drink and play pool, because apparently this was commonplace for him to just have people over and drink, do drugs, and play pool. Mm -hmm. And he had gone to bed, and they were still there playing pool. And I guess it's kind of like a screen, like a porch or patio area that this pool table's on. So he, anyway, he just left them. And he was pretty sure that the person who took it was na- was named Jerry Scott Heidler because that was one of the guys that was there. He said he was kind of shady and had been acting a little strange and had had a rough few days and was certain it was him who had taken it. So anyway, I'm mentioning this because the girls were taken in a van and then brought to Alma and there's this missing van from Alma. So they were just like, well, maybe something mm-hmm. to that. Let's kind of check that in. Like worth looking into. So they start trying to connect the family to someone in Alma. They went through the DFSS uh, – no, DFCS. You know how it's always changed? Like sometimes it's DCS. Mm-hmm. This one is DFCS. DFCS files of children that had been placed in their home, and they came across the name of a nine-year-old girl named Joanna Mosley from Alma. Police thought it was worth looking into her family as this was the only connection between the Daniels and this small town where their children ended up. So Joanna had come from a rough home. Her mother, Latrell, was an alcoholic and would date unsavory men, some of whom would do unsavory things to Joanna. No, no. Latrell was not a present mother at all. She had no rules and mostly did not care what happened to her children. And police discover that she had four children in total. Well, for other children, sorry, besides Joanna, George, Steve, Lisa, and 20-year-old son, Jerry Scott Heidler, the one who the other Jerry thinks stole his van. Hmm. And his sister was in, at some point, the foster care of Danny and Kim. The Daniels. There's yes. a lot of alliterations in this right. story, right? Like Danny Daniels, Jerry Jones, or whatever. <laughs> like... Yes, yes. There's lots of craziness. Okay, so um, Jerry Scott Heidler was her 20-year-old son. Everyone else was like older siblings to this guy. Police went to Latrell's home but figured they're not going to find anything but just wanted to go and question them. And to their surprise, the stolen van was parked behind the home. And as they were approaching the home, Jerry walked out of the house and noticed them and runs back into the house, which, you know, doesn't seem suspicious at all, Jerry. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Just run. When police knocked on the door, Jerry's older brother, Steve, answered. He said Jerry was not at home, but clearly that was a lie. We just saw him. And so then they searched around the house, and one officer saw this, like, wood panel leaning against the house. And it looked as if it had, like, been moved just recently. And so they removed it. And underneath the house, there was Jerry just lying underneath the home. Wow. Okay. Clearly you've done something wrong if you're going to go and hide underneath the house, right? Mm-hmm. So they take Jerry into custody and they question him and he fully admits to murdering the four members of the Daniels family. No way. And they, yeah. And they ask, well, what happened? And he goes, I went berserk, I guess. This is the answer. No. So. What? We're, gonna, we're now going to dive into – there's a lot more to this story. But we're going to dive into who Jerry is now. I know we don't typically talk a lot about – the murderers, but this background needs to be said. Okay. Jerry also had a really rough upbringing. Clearly he had a mom who didn't care what any of her kids did. 
Okay. He had a heart defect at the age of four and had open heart surgery. And this now would then become his excuse for just about everything in his life. Oh, he had a heart defect. Oh, I have a heart issue. Like everything he would ever say, give an excuse, it would be his heart. Didn't make any sense, but whatever. He didn't try to use that as to why he murdered people, did he? No, he didn't say it for oh, Okay. All right. But it would be like, I can't do my homework. I have heart surgery. But, you know, I mean, I don't know if it was that extreme, but literally everything. He'd be like, oh, I did that. Oh, you know, I have a bad heart. Hmm. Okay. Jerry was held back in kindergarten and first grade, which is pretty significant, I'd say, because typically they try not to even hold you back that early because they want to wait for like the later years. So mm-hmm. must have been kind of rough. He became an alcoholic by 11 years of age. Oh, my goodness. His mom, Latrell, was married at 15 and had her first kid soon after that. And at 18, she married a second time to another man and had three more kids. So that was the Steve, George, Lisa, and Jerry were between those two men. The second husband ends up moving to Florida and just up and leaving them. And at age 16, George was sent to rehab for alcoholism. So no one in this family is doing well. Steve had been locked up in the juvenile detention for threatening to beat up Latrell's current husband, who was Lawton Mosley, Joanna's dad. Are you following all this? I mean, I think so. (laughs) Lots of different people. Mm -hmm. So she had been married two times, had all of those older kids, now Mm -hmm. married to Lawton Mosley, had Joanna. And they're all All doing terribly. Except Lisa, I think. I think Lisa ends up getting married and moving out and she's okay, but I don't Mm -hmm. know that, I guess, for sure. But no one's doing well. Okay. So at 11, Jerry also attempted to – or no, committed his first criminal offense when he broke into a neighbor's trailer to steal coins. He was ordered to get by the booze probably, probably. right? Because I was wondering where is he getting this alcohol from at 11 years old? Well, and also whatever they have in the house since her mom and her husbands were all alcoholics and drug addicts. Mm. I'm sure he's just getting – and they don't care, so they probably Mm. don't even notice when things are missing. But he was ordered by the court to go live with relatives because there was non-existent parental efforts to get him under control. That was what the judge said. Okay. So he lived with an aunt and uncle for about a year, and he seemed to be doing better. But then Latrell started coming around and berating the aunt and uncle, and eventually they just couldn't take her nonsense anymore. So they're like, sorry, we can't keep Jerry. Like, we need to bring him back. So they bring him back. But there were no other foster homes for him, so then he had to go back and live with Latrell. Can that happen where they say there's no other foster homes, so we're just going to send you back to the most unsafe situation ever? I would say at this point, no. But at that point, yes. Okay. And apparently, this is during a time where Georgia's like foster care system was in really bad shape. Okay. So, which is probably why they loved having Danny and Kim for kids. And was oh, because like they were standing. actually good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he ends up going back to Latrell, but then he goes back and forth to a few different foster families and mom for a while at this point. So when they find someone, they're like, okay, now we'll take him because he's technically supposed to be in foster care. But oh, well, we, now we don't have anybody, so let's just give him back to mom. It's like, it doesn't wow. make any sense. In August of 1988, a neighbor had called police because Jerry was in the yard at 10 p.m. yelling he was going to kill himself or these mother effing devil worshipers, or what he was yelling. Right. Apparently, Latrell was into voodoo. And was always threatening to do things to people. She would be like, I can make things happen to you and your family, is what she would kind of say. And she got her kids involved at this at times. So I guess Jerry was sick of it at this time. So again, he's taken away. But in March of 1989, he goes back home. He started torturing cats by shooting them with BB guns. Oh, my goodness gracious. No, 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 no. I mean, there's literally nothing good that happens in this guy's life. Several times he would stand in the middle of the highway in front of trucks trying to kill himself and they would have to slam on their brakes not to hit them. And this one time one of them swerved and all the logs that they were hauling just fell off of the truck because he's just standing in the middle of the road like, okay, here I am. Oh my God, but bless his heart. Like he is screaming for help. Oh yeah, 100%. And no one is really – I the they weren't even D, – DFCS wasn't even really helping him at all. So, I mean, I don't have a problem saying that at this point. 
At 12, he tried to take his life by hanging himself, but Luttrell found him and cut him down. And a few days after that, he tried to smother Joanna with a pillow. So, yeah, I think he's literally, like you said, screaming for help. After this, he spent two months in a mental hospital. He went on antidepressants and then went home. Three months later, because once he got home, he wasn't being supervised and taking his medications Mm -hmm. or attending therapy, he started saying some of the same things and doing the same things that he was doing before. At 13, he started stealing alcohol and staying out of school for days. DFCS was involved again, and they took it to court to get him removed, but the judge ordered him to go back home, go to school, and attend a mental health program and go for psych testing. So that was their way of fixing this after all. Mm -mm -mm -mm. At 14 years, he was declared a danger to himself and others in order to go to the mental hospital again, where he spent 11 days, but then again came home and got no further treatment because Luttrell wouldn't take him. She could find a way to go get money and get her car to work to go get her alcohol, but she would say her car didn't work, so she couldn't get him to therapy all the time. In 10th Mm -hmm. grade, at the age of 16, he drops out of school. Mm -hmm. So he started hanging around with his brothers and their friends, and he was doing meth, weed, speed, mushrooms, whatever you can get his hands on. In 1995, Joanna was removed from the Luttrell's home and sent to Danny and Kim's, and this is where the two families meet in 95. Okay. After some time at their home, Joanna had asked to see her mother. Although it was against the rules, Kim made the drive, the 50 miles, to allow this visit because she just wanted to help fix their relationship. She wanted to be the one to make this right. She wanted to be just like the Driggers were, like, this is this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So she met Jerry, but, was intro- but he introduced himself to them as Scott Taylor. Ding, 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 ding. Scott being his middle name and Taylor being the family name on Latrell's side. And apparently this is how he would introduce himself to people who didn't know him or his past. So it was a way of being this different person for mm. people who may not have known everything. So Kim and Danny did get to know him and offered to help him too. They offered him a place to stay, to get clean, And so he did. He went and stayed with them. And I think Joanna spent like a total of like 10 or 12 weeks with the Daniels Mm -hmm. during that year. And he would just come on and off or he would come for long visits. Latrell started coming around and they would go to church and she started asking for money from the church. And so then they started to avoid her. And so she isn't happy with them and is threatening her voodoo on them. Okay. So then Jerry meets a girl named Maria. She gets pregnant and has a son named Joshua, but Jerry is nowhere near ready to be a dad. Mm-hmm. He's still, But he's still going to the Daniels and kind of trying to get on the right path, but not really. And at some point, he starts to show interest in Jessica, who's the daughter. The daughter. Mm-hmm. Jessica's young, much younger than him. I mean, I want to say like at least five years. I don't remember the age difference, but I want to say at least five years age difference. And she wasn't interested in him, and she thought she kind of got uncomfortable and didn't really want all the attention he was giving. So they, at some point, Danny and Kim were like, you know what? It's probably best not to have Jerry Mm -hmm. in our house anymore. Like, he doesn't seem to really be getting clean, and he's now making our children uncomfortable. So let's kind of cut this off. Mm -hmm. So Jerry mainly stays at Maria's house at this – or Maria's mom's house at this time. Maria, um, he's there to help with Joshua, although he's not a very – very much of a help. Maria is his mom, kid's mom. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Um, he would also call the Daniel's house late at night and ask to talk to Jessica. And Danny would be like, dude, she's asleep. You need to go to sleep. You know, just stop calling. Mm-hmm. One day in 1996, Danny heads out to work and decides that after work, he would go to see Jerry and let him know, hey, you can't come around anymore. Mm-hmm. Please don't Quit call. calling. Like, yeah, just leave us alone. So the family at that point after that would run into Jerry every now and then at the grocery store or something, but that he would act like he didn't even see them. Like, they'd be like, oh, hey, Jerry. And he'd just like look and then walk away like, nope, I'm not talking to you. So in 1997, Maria and Jerry are now expecting their second child. Mm -hmm. Over this year, things get really bad at home again, and Joanna accuses an uncle of raping her, and the DFCS get involved again. 
then Jerry starts acting out even more because he's now seeing his sister go down all the same roads that he went down. Like they keep getting involved. They do something, but then she ends up back and her life is going to be ruined just like mine is and all this. So he steals two cars and drives recklessly and gets arrested for both. Goes to treatment or is ordered to treatment, but never gets the help. I feel like if you're ordered for something, it's like they should literally take you physically and bring Mm -hmm. you there and be like, here you go. You need to do it now. Yeah, right. But apparently that's not what happens or not what happened then. At the end of November in 1997, he goes to Maria's house because she's not feeling well. Jerry and her mother take her to the hospital and the baby has irregular heartbeats and they decide to deliver the baby, but he's still born. Oh, no. So now this is another thing that you Jerry You are kidding. Nothing good happens to this guy, nothing. but like, oh. Yeah. I mean, I want to say like he's not taking responsibility and getting help himself, but no one's no one's helping him get the help either mm-hmm. at the same time, you know. So Jerry doesn't handle this well. The baby's funeral was on December 2nd, 1997. The next day, he goes home to his mom's house, and his brothers are there, and the family keep asking him all these questions about the baby and what happened, and he couldn't handle it. So then he decides to go to his friend Jerry Johnson's house to play pool to get away. He proceeds to drink and play pool and keep talking about the baby with them, and he just seemed really out of it to them and wouldn't stop talking about it. So that's when Jerry Johnson goes to bed and is when Jerry... Scott Heidler steals the van. Mm -hmm. All these people. Okay, so now here's the account of what happened that night, according to Jerry. He said he was in sort of a trance-like state because he was just so sad and overwhelmed with everything with his stillborn baby. And he arrives at the Daniels' house and the dog, so he steals the van. Why did he even go there? He doesn't know. Like, he's saying he doesn't know. He doesn't know what made him go there, but he was mad at them for some reason. Okay. And he did intend to kill- Well, for saying that he couldn't come around anymore. Well, yes, that's part of it. But that was over a year ago. Still. Yeah. I mean, clearly he's holding on to it. So he stole the van. Now, it has been stated that Jerry's, like, not very smart. You know, he dropped out at 16. He was held back so many times. But- there's been little things that he does that he's like, well, clearly he's thinking about something because he would make a mental note every time he went over to Jerry Johnson's house of like, okay, when Jerry goes to bed, he parks his – he locks all of the doors and all the windows except for this one door because that's where he parks his wheelchair to um, charge at night. And so that's kind of a deterrent to not be able to get in, but he knows that that door's open and how to get in. And he also makes note of where he always hangs his car keys. And so that night he knew exactly how to get back into the house to mm. grab those car keys to get the van. So they were saying that he was very much planning this in his head. Mm-hmm. So he gets – he drives up to the house and the dogs that the Daniels have don't bark because they're used to him being around in his scent, at least. He had been in the past. Mm-hmm. So he gets right. out of the car. He chugs the rest of his beer, throws it to the ground. So that's the beer can that they found. He knows that there's a ladder in the shed, so he goes and gets it and goes up to the bathroom window, throws his couple cigarettes on the ground. Now, the Daniels had an alarm system installed the few weeks earlier because there had been burglaries in the area, and Kim was afraid that somebody was going to come in and steal all the presents that she had worked literally all year to amass, and so Mm -hmm. they get an alarm system, but it was busted on this particular night, and they just hadn't gotten a chance to, like, call somebody to come out and fix it. So had the alarm system been running properly, I don't know that any of this would have happened, Hmm. So he walks through the house, then goes and smokes a few cigarettes, putting them out in the carpet, whatnot. He goes to, yeah, Danny's gun cabinet, which is not locked. He grabbed the Remington shotgun, and at 1.30 a.m., he shot Danny in the chest and then shot Kim, and then Danny again because Danny wasn't dead and he tried to get up. But they said that he was likely still alive laying there, and so he likely heard all of the rest of what happened that night. Oh my Baby gosh. Gabriel was sleeping in the same room, so he was awoken by the noises. Jessica heard the shots and ran to the bathroom, and then Jerry went into the boys' room. Corey hid in the closet, and Bryant was on the top bunk, and he just walked over and shot him in the head. And he didn't want to shoot 
the foster care kids because he didn't have anything against them. He was going in there to kill the family. The Daniels. Yeah, biological Mm -hmm. slash adopted children. So Jessica then runs from the bathroom towards her parents' room to check on them, and Jerry shot her in the back of the head as she was running towards their door. Brooke then yells, Scott! And he snaps out of his trance. He says, walks into their room and says, there's someone in the house. I'm saving your life. And that's when he whisks them away, and we all know what happened after that. Hmm. So the girls all picked Jerry out in a picture lineup as Scott. They're like, this is Scott Taylor. Mm -hmm. And as the person who had taken them and done all of the bad things to them. Jerry was arrested and would be charged with four counts of murder, two counts of molestation, three counts of kidnapping. And I know that sodomy got put in there at some point. Oh, no. Yeah. I didn't want to mention all of the things that he did. But And and then I want to say in the end, those molestation charges got dropped because the sodomy like incorporated that in Mm -hmm. it. So the maximum penalty for all of this would be death by electrocution. I bet it would. The town was enraged by this event. Santa Claus? Yes, the town yeah. of Santa Claus. And I believe tombs in county in general, but yeah, the Santa Claus was enraged. He basically destroyed the town because it was never the same since. Like, people don't want to go there for a stamp of their town name anymore. Um. Anyway, and there was a lot of talk of wanting him to be set free so that they could take care of him in true bloody tombs fashion. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. While in jail awaiting a trial, Jerry did many weird things, including making a substance that resembled blood and put it all over his cell multiple times and making these little dolls out of tissues that remember resembled babies as if, like, they were voodoo dolls. It's really mm. weird. Well, because re- his mom was into – Voodoo, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. But why would he just make these – it was always these two dolls that resembled babies. So they kept thinking it was like his two sons. Mm. But I don't know. Any, I don't know. Who knows? He is not he, okay. No, he's not okay. He rewired a smoke alarm. How you do this in jail, I don't know. This jail apparently needs some help in <laughs> security and whatnot. But he rewired a smoke alarm to make it seem like there was a fire happening in another part of the jail. So he's also not as stupid as everyone mm-hmm. keeps thinking he is. Mm-hmm. And he also wrote on his cell wall, red rum them all. You guys know what red Murder. rum is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yes. Gross. Okay, Jerry. Mm-hmm. Are they getting him help? Uh, no. Oh. I don't think so. Well. He had two psych evals and both said that he was competent to stand trial and that he knew right from wrong He was, and that he was not delusional at the time of the murder. They did make notes of all of his like past mental issues and that it would be possible for him to be found guilty but mentally ill. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that was like the term back then because I feel like I don't hear that, but I've heard it in the last couple of cases that I've done. Mm-hmm. Guilty mentally. But mentally Ill. Oh, okay. You know, like that specific mm-hmm. term. Anyway, well, that's very true. He is guilty, and I do think that he was competent and right. he knew what he was doing. But he is definitely mentally ill. So I guess maybe it's like because I keep thinking like not guilty by reason of insanity. No, but that, I this don't is think just saying like no, you did it, but you are mentally ill and you need help. Right. Yes. Well. So, okay, this is why he's not getting help then. Let's get to that. So Jerry started making mental notes of the routines of the jail, like when the bed checks were, he knew that they checked him at 11 p.m., 2.30 in the morning, and again at 5 a.m. In June of 1999, this is all while he's awaiting to be put on trial. So he's arrested and just sitting in jail in Santa Claus or Tombs County, not Santa Claus. He hit a small blade in a hole in his mattress. After bed checks, he would start to saw at the bars on his window And then he would use Colgate and cigarette ash to make a gray paste to then, like, put it on the bars so you wouldn't see that there was a crack or anything in it. Wow. Yeah. This is some Shawshank. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. On July 6th, he managed to cut through all of it and it squeezed – not all of it, but enough to squeeze out of that window and then cut through the fence outside in less than two hours and escapes. (gasps) Yeah. A deputy sees him on, like, a deputy just driving down the road and sees him, and J- Jerry just kind of waves at him, like, 
looking this up. And I think he's only in like boxers and a t-shirt because he didn't want to like wear prison garb to like run away. So the deputy did try to turn around and find him, but he was gone. He, they didn't know where he went. 12 hours later, Jerry is seen walking down the highway. He's tired, he's sweaty, and he's bloody. I'm sure from squeezing through windows and fences. Apparently, he had spent all of this time trying to figure out how to break out, but spent no time on where he was going to go once he got out. So he ended up just turning himself in because he had nowhere to go. Because he wasn't going to go to Latrell's. That would be the first place that everyone would look. And Mm -hmm. he didn't didn't have anywhere else to go. Wow. So now we get to the trial where they do get a venue change because they don't think he'll get a fair trial in Toombs County. So they get it moved to another county in Georgia. And in August of 1999, the jury selection is started and the trial starts pretty much a week later. The girls were prepared to testify but end up not having to because they had a recording of them telling the police of what happened and of them picking out Scott slash Jerry Taylor or whatever Jerry Heidler in a photo lineup. And I will say that the girl – one of the daughters, I want to say it was Amber, was upset that she didn't get to because she wanted to face him and she wanted to tell him that she forgave him because she didn't want to hang up on the anger, which or this and just be sad all the time. So amazing, but she never got to do that. Hmm. So the trial takes less than two weeks and the jury only takes 45 minutes to find him guilty and they decline the guilty but mentally ill charge or whatever it's called. It's not a plea. I don't know what that's called. But anyway, they decline that. So clearly he's not going to get help because they're not saying he's mentally ill. How could they say that? I have no idea. There's not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot in this book about like specifics on how they got reached that, but that's what they they came to. The penalty phase of this started immediately, I think like the same day, and the defense called an old teacher of his from like 6th grade to talk about what he was like as a kid and I guess kind of give him the layout of like, listen, he had a rough childhood. He was good. Like underneath I could see the good, but this is what happened. Latrell is convinced he didn't do it. It was somebody else and he's covering up for it. But she's just delusional in general. The defense tried to say he should be shown mercy because he showed the girls mercy by letting them go. After he killed four people. Right. It's a bunch of bull. He was sentenced to death by electrocution and sits on death row today. He spends 23 hours a day in his cell and is allowed one hour a day in a small rectangular run outside. And that's it. Amber now lives in the house and is that they were murdered in and is going to get married in the same church as the funerals were held in. Amber said she can feel her mama's love in that house and everyone else's love. Oops, excuse me, sorry. Brooke had a baby in her teens and when they were in the hospital, they ran into Joanna who had also just had a baby and mm-hmm. – visited with her some and they said they have no ill will towards her because none of this was her fault like Mm -hmm. just because she happened to be in their home and whatnot but thankfully these the surviving children went on to do okay like they're doing okay and they're they're forgiving and the the author of this book like went to their house and they were showing them pictures. He sh- they showed him around the house. They even invite, or she's even, even invited him to her wedding. And mm. anyway, so they're doing well from what I can tell based on the end of this book. So, well, that's wonderful. Yes. And a testament to their amazing parents and right. All that. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, what Sorry. about little Gabriel? Well, so Gabriel went on to be adopted in another state. Okay. And Corey went – oh, my gosh, I know this. I think Corey and Amanda, because she was the other foster, because the the kids that were the Daniels children, like legal children, went to live with a sister, Mm -hmm. an aunt. And then, so Gabriel got adopted, and then I believe Corey and Am- and Amanda went to the Driggers, the same foster family that took Kim in. Okay. Wow. That was so wonderful. Hmm. Yeah. So it's like all all these things like came full circle. Well, because Santa Claus is little. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, she didn't live in Santa Claus when she was oh, younger, okay. so she was outside of there. But how? Why did this happen? First of all, like there's no mental illness. Yeah, yeah. That's literally the and only and trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it's awful. It's awful. This family. I mean, I'm certainly not excusing what he did because there clearly was a darkness that mm-hmm. you know mentally ill people don't all have like there's a lot of mentally ill people that just don't go murder about it right but no that's the thing is like those mentally ill people that we're talking about probably have help or at least a support system right well even the people that were trying to help jerry like his mother latrell would ruin it for him she would come around there was another foster family that he went to that she like 100% like berated again too. And they had to mm-hmm. say, no, we can't do this anymore. So it's like his own mother wouldn't even let him get the help he needed. She was like against it. It's awful. She it's was clearly mentally ill as well, I would say, with the whole, I mean, voodoo thing. And mm-hmm. I'm not nothing against that, but I'm just saying like, I'm sure it wasn't actual practicing voodoo. Like we know it to be. It was just some. Well, did you know that the the National Association for Black Magic is in Georgia? I didn't know that. Oh, okay. You I know, know, I did a whole thing on voodoo. I know, but I didn't realize it was in Georgia because here mm-hmm. I am thinking the whole thing's in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, like New Orleans. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway. That's terrible. That is – you know what? It takes a really special kind of tragedy and horrificness to ruin a town called Santa Claus. I know. Ugh. It's gross. The whole thing was gross. That's sad. So if anybody wants to read this actual book. Which is called? Fear Came to Town. Okay. Instead of Santa Claus is coming to town? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yep. Hmm. And there's even a little sign. I don't know if you can see it. Like Santa Claus City Limits. City Limits. Yeah. Wow. The city that loves children. Wow. I don't, I don't see that. Well, I think they do. It's just it's not their fault. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not the city or whatever little town's fault, but it definitely – the foster care system was broken at that mm-hmm. time too. For sure. So – In the county. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Toombs. Yeah. Bloody Toombs County. Oof. Yeah. No thanks. Mm-mm. Nope. Done. Thanks for covering that. I know for a fact that that took some wind out of you this reading week. This? Oh my <laughs> yes. gosh. I'm reading it while hold I was babysitting all week a four-month-old baby, and this is what I'm doing while I'm holding him. Yes. Like, what, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> we're here for you guys. That's what we're doing. So thank you for mm-hmm. covering that and for putting the work in and stay tuned for the book giveaway. We've had a couple mm-hmm. of those lately and they're super fun. We really like your guys' interaction on that. Um, we posted on Instagram and Facebook in case you're wondering how you can enter to be on the book. Um, so come and do that this week and follow us and we'll we'll mail it to you from yep. our hearts to yours, not mm-hmm. from Santa Claus. No. Nope. I'm not going there to get the postmark, people. Sorry. <laughs> Yes. Well, gosh, rest in peace. This family is such a massacre. It's very sad. I feel like when it's uh, 100, not that any of our victims are not innocent, but like these were good people Mm -hmm. doing great things and it's a small town of not greatness and they were really robbed. And could have been prevented in my opinion. Right. Yes. If Mm -hmm. Right. And it is sad to me that he's not getting help now. I know. You know? Just, I mean, yeah. But I, I like that die. the right. Mm-hmm. Awful. I like that um the family is doing well. That's mm-hmm. great. And they're in yeah. Santa Claus and they're making it a better place. I 100% know that. Mm-hmm. I feel I it. So. I feel I it so. in my bones cuz they're Daniels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's awesome. True. All right, thank you guys for joining us. Uh we'll be back next week with another case for you. So join us then. We love spending our Mondays with you. We do have a Patreon, so if you like what you hear, we do some fun things over there. We are going to give you an extra crime per month, and then we're going to give you a 
fun episode where we hang out with you on a Friday and talk about, I don't know, Christy and I catch up. We just, mm-hmm. we what are we reading? What are we watching? What are we doing? Um, so it's our time to like kind of catch up with you guys too. So if you are interested in that, we have a link in our bio that you can come and join us or you can send us a message and I'll send that to you. And we love you. Always remember the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closet.